You're listening to Kistorian Brothers. Phone calls about Kiss from your friends at Kistorian.com. The originals, keeping it real since 2010. Sirens going off, we got Dusty. Please enter a number followed by the pound key. Jesus. Hello. Hello. Who's this? Hello. Hello. Hello, hi. Who is this? Oh, I'm, I'm afraid I have it on. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, thank you. You're listening to Kistorian Brothers. Phone calls about Kiss from your friends at Kistorian.com. The originals, keeping it real since 2010. Kistorian Brothers. Conversations about Kiss. This is Dave. Man, what's happening? Dusty, thank you so much. When we first met, I saw you play at a club, and I walked up to you and handed my card to you, and you were busy with other people, so I was overstepping my bounds, and you said, I'm in the biz, like, I don't need your help. So I went to my car and gave you my CD when I came back. And from there, we got to meet for lunch one day, and and you asked me, well, what would you want to do? And within a day and a half, you and I are hanging out with uh, Ace Fraley at the Gibson uh, headquarters showcase there at the Hit Factory. Do I have that right? That sounds pretty accurate. Well, that was a pretty good time. <laughs> and we could get to that later, but... Uh, Dusty Wright is a former editor of Cream and known as the Metaphysical Cowboy. I think you've got, what, eight records out, or have I got that wrong? Eight out, and the ninth coming out in April. In April? You've got another one on the dock? Yeah, the, the one that I sent you is the ninth. That's coming out in April. Oh, I thought you, so that was released, just released to press. And what's that called again, Dusty? That's called Advance. No, I got that, asshole. What's the name of the record? (laughs) (laughs) The name of the record is Lonely, though. Well, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, you know, without, you know, going back and and going clockwork orange on your career, you know, at first riff, though I really loved uh, If If We Never, which was when I first met you, which would have been in 2012. Uh, maybe even earlier. That, was that 2012 or 20? 2011, somewhere in there. Yeah, I'm not even sure. At the time, I think you thought I worked for Whitley Stryver, but we've gotten through that. Alright. Kiss fans remember where they were when they first heard Kiss, and I'm wondering if you do and what your first impression was and what perspective that was coming from at the time, like how old were you and that kind of thing. I would have been in high school, and I, I think it was either Strutter. Uh, I think it had to be Strutter, and it was on WMMS radio, which for years and years and years was like the number one rock FM station in the Midwest. 
Midwest, I think only rivaled by WNEW in New York and maybe K-Rock in LA. And if you wanted to be, if you wanted to make it in the industry, you had to kind of be anointed by that radio station, WMMS, home of the buzzard, they used to call it. The buzzards would come to perch every spring in Hinkley, Ohio. That's when you knew this, the winter was over. So they had adapted this buzzard. They were a bunch of really free-form, free-thinking DJs. You know, one of the first African-American DJs outside of San Francisco, I think. You know, just a really cool, uh, really just cool group of DJs. Kid Leo, who now works for Little Stevens Under Garage, Underground Garage, rather, on Sirius Satellite. But it was just a really cool group of guys and gals that were DJs there. And Kiss, as we know, was massive in Detroit, but they were also very big in Cleveland. Now, for me, I had been into Bowie a couple of years previous and into uh, Roxy Music and some of the other glam bands. So I didn't quite get where Kiss was coming from with the makeup and everything. I thought, well, they're a little late on the glam thing, but maybe not, because it's around the same time period or at the tail end of it. But there was no denying their ability to write incredible jukebox anthems. You know, that's one thing you can say. You hear a Kiss song on, uh, you know, in a bar on a, on a jukebox, people are moving. Well, let me ask you a, the real, then put you to the metal. Did you buy a Kiss record? Interestingly enough, I never bought a Kiss record, even though I was a fan of their music. Hey, you're breaking up. I got to let you go, Dusty. A little joke. That's a little Kiss Army joke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't quite. All right. I'm breaking up because. No, that's a joke. That's a little joke. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I had very. Uh, I'd, I'd been tutored uh, into the finer things of music. I'm aware. By a guy named uh, Harvey Gold, who had a band called Ten Huey, but he was. You know, he was like the cool dude that worked at the mall, the record store, Dismart. Uh-huh. And so he was—he was turning me on to all this obscure English progressive rock stuff, you know. And I was getting into it. that time period. I was kind of fading from glam, you know, like I said, Kiss and Mata Hoople and Bowie and all these other bands, and getting into like Genesis and Yes. So were they on your radar? As if you gave a shit, or when were you next aware of them? Well, it, you know. I enjoyed their music as singles, but I, I was into concept records. So, you know, Kiss coming out the same year as Quadrophenia, my money was going to be spent on Quadrophenia. No knock on the talent of Paul and Gene. <laughs> and, and little did I know that that would re-enter my, my life in a very cool and odd trajectory uh, years later. But, uh, you know, then moving into New York, I got into punk rock and stuff. And, yeah, Kiss was still wildly popular. And Now, in the early days, like, so I'm just trying to get a timeline here. If Kiss is doing their first shows in 72, uh, where are you at that point in New York City? I'm not in New York in 72, Dave. Come on, I'm still living in Akron, Ohio. Oh, you're still in Akron. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. You know, we'll scrub now, I that. I moved to New York until 1981, so... 81, okay. Oh, yeah. Did you ever go to see Kiss, uh, you know, in the 70s? I did not. As I said, I was into prog rock and then punk rock. So I kind of, like, switched gears. And, you know, when 75, 76 rolled around, it was Patti Smith. 
you know, I went full on kind of New York blondie, you know, I kind of went full on punk. You know, the Cleveland had uh, the Dead Boys, who by the way are not that far removed from Kiss or the New York Dolls. Interestingly enough, I was way into the New York Dolls, but not Kiss, but they were both, you know, the Kiss clearly wrote better singles, but I thought the New York Dolls were cooler. Right, but I mean, you soon had other Kiss records to contend with. I'm just wondering if, if you were sort of of the, you know, you know, and this is maybe part of your prog rock recovery, your post grad rock recovery, is that, um, you know, it would be easy to say that Kiss is sort of like a, like my dad told me when we watched Kiss meets the Phantom. He said, "I can't believe you like these guys." He said, "One day you'll under you'll understand what I'm telling you." Kiss appeals to the lowest common denominator of mankind. So I, I'm just guessing because you're sort of an esoteric guy and got into the business that Kiss seemed like a uh, like well too orchestrated to be sincere. Uh, I would say it was probably not esoteric enough. You know, I, I fancied myself like, you know, at that time period, I started getting into the Velvet Underground and subversive lyrics and, you know, the, uh, you know, the fairy tale, uh, the, uh, you know, all this stuff with Led Zeppelin, with the legends of King Arthur and the Lord of the Rings. It's just a silly, you know, completely silly in some some respect. Well, this is silly to ask you right now, and I hate to cut you off, but because KISS fans are listening. So did you ever hear The Elder? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say KISS The Elder? No, I don't. In 1981, when they were dead on their backs in the U.S. and touring outside of the country and didn't do a U.S. tour for several years after Dynasty and their disco hit, they put out a concept record called The Elder, which is a lot like Lord of the Rings, and it's a story about a young boy that becomes a hero. <laughs> well, I thought that with my Led Zeppelin 4 record, Stairway to Heaven, you know, no offense. No, what, no, no. Listen, you don't need to hear the elder. But the point is, the elder is this like, this like, uh, like dark shame on the Kiss mantle. But at the same time, if like if you're listening to it, it's because you need to, right? As a Kiss fan, it's sort of a place you only go once a year. <laughs> I might have to listen to it. that. Maybe I'm gonna send it your way. Lou Reed's involved. Cher is involved. Bob Ezrin did it, but Bob was high on blow at the time. So, Dusty, to segue, um, I understand that, you know, I mean, as an editor of Cream, what were your years with Cream? Well, that was a little later, you know. I mean, I had a whole career before that. First, and my first personal encounter with Kiss is when I'm the editor of Cream in 91, 92. Yeah, okay. And I brought, and I brought back the boy Howdy page, which was one of my favorite pages in Cream Magazine. That was the faux beer. Yeah, yeah. Although they did they did brew some. But it was the Robert Crumb logo. How was the beer, Dusty? Did you yeah, try? It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Not, nothing, nothing to write home about. But, uh, you know, and uh, we were taught, we're throwing ideas around the editorial, and Kiss's uh, manager, the label, kept saying, you know, 
The kid has been in Cream so many times. We love that you're bringing back the old writers. How about a cover story with Cream? And I really thought hard about it because I really like the guys. I really like the guys. Gene's a character, as we know. And, uh, and I was probably more than jealous of all of his conquests. And, you know, and, and that his girlfriend was way hot, right? And, and all of that. But, uh, and that he dated your wife, but we'll get to that later. Not Gene. Well, no, Gene. Not Gene. Paul. So we'll get to that. Oh, my God. But... But uh, I said, yeah, let's do let's do a story on Kiss. And I think Pearl Jam was on the cover, and Pearl Jam was just starting to break. Uh-huh. And just coincidentally, it happened to be our biggest selling issue during my tenure. Pearl Jam just, you know, grunge was just exploding then, right? But we did this really great piece on Kiss, and I did a boy howdy with with Gene. We went to one of these very swank hotels, as you can imagine. Gene always traveled in style. They were getting ready to play the Ritz, which had moved up to 54th Street to the old Studio 54. And that was when they were, you know, unmasked during those years, right? Right. And, and so, you know, they wanted to be taken a little bit more serious. And then they were letting it all hang out. And they're playing their songs like a rock and roll band, right? Yeah. And, and packing venues. And uh, I meet Gene with the photographer, Eddie Malouk. Eddie was a great great photographer the boys loved him you know Eddie just had a way of connecting with rock and roll performers like nobody's business it was just very unassuming but a huge fan like we all were and, and maybe we so, could maybe we could use Eddie's photos that you were so kind to share with me privately uh, for the promotion of this pod absolutely we'll just clear with Eddie I'll give you his, his info I still have his contact alright cool brother I'm sure I'm sure he'd be delighted since I'm name checking him but uh, in any event Gene goes, I got the perfect place for the boy Howdy photo. And he leads us into the bathroom. I'm thinking, uh oh, are there chips in here? You know, what are we, what are we, what is Gene turning us on to? And he sits on the, the can, he pull, drops trout, sits on the can, and holds up the beer can. He goes, okay, Eddie, get your shot. And it was, it was harkened back to a very famous early, late 60s, early 70s pose that Frank Zappa did for a poster called Frank Zappa Crappa. Oh, wow. I've never seen that image. But, uh, you know, it was kind of an homage to, to Zappa. And it was really, really funny. People loved it. I'll have to send you a copy of, of that issue of Cream. I found some of the old issues. Now, I, I vaguely remember you telling me that, you know, Gene was also the pitch man for the band, and he was obviously pitching for the cover, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it was... It, it, I think if grunge hadn't been so hot and, you know, as an editor and not the publisher of the magazine. The publisher needs to sell magazines, so, you know, they're always messing around with what's going to be more high-profile at the newsstand. And in those, in those years, you know, it was bands like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and, you know, uh, all the other bands. Right, and you could, you could also take the argument, right, that, you know, Guitar World or somebody else is going to put them on the cover. Well, I'm sure they would, but, uh, you know, we were... And, and, and they did. Hey, in all honesty, they were featured in Cream Magazine probably more than any other band with the exception of Lou Reed. You know, the editors and everyone loved Kiss. Right, so it made sense. But over the years. So take us but, behind, and, take and, us... And interestingly enough, Rolling Stone would never put them on the cover. You know, that's right. documented. Every Kiss fan knows why. So, but yeah. what's interesting to me, Dusty, that, you know, some people might not realize is like, 
you know, Kiss may have had management before, but ultimately, you know, they cut the they cut out the uh, the middleman and were managing themselves. So here you've got this guy, and they've they've just done a renew image where Gene and they're not glammed out. Gene has now grown a goatee and looking very metal. What was the vibe with Gene? Well, when you first meet Gene, he's bigger than life, and he did have that menacing beard, you know, and goatee. So, is he taller than you or not? You, you're pretty tall. Yeah, that's all about the same height. But you know, he's he's bigger than life. You know, he's a bigger than life character, and his and his sexual appetite is bigger than life. So, if you're a dude, you got to be pretty comfortable in your own steed, right? Because you're with an alpha male. You know, that's the one thing I will always get from Gene being an alpha male. Now. I dug it because it didn't, I wasn't, in, I was slightly intimidated, but not too much. And it really was, it was great because after the gig, you know, of course they're going to, they shepherd me into the gig, VIP, the whole nine yards. I mean, they're great guys, Paul and Gene, and they're so accommodated. And afterwards, backstage, I'm hanging out with Gene. He's cruising around in his robe and his mother is there. <laughs> you know, and he's the complete gentleman around his mother, right? Yeah. And this is this is Mark from Cream Magazine and blah, blah, blah. You know, nice to meet you. And, you know, what do you think? And she's asking me what I thought of the show. And I'm just going, I love it. I love it, Gene. You know, because you got to, you know, Kiss fans know those guys are straight arrows. They didn't do drugs. They, you know, they had their fun in a different kind of way. But they were complete gentlemen. And they were never condescending pricks to anyone they realize that you sell records when you have a lot of fans and look how accommodating they've been over the years gene's probably the kind of guy you could stop for a picture and he would tell you a great story if you asked him or if you said hey gene remember remember the show you did at the blah 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 arena and yeah and he'd probably tell you you know what uh, songs they played in the set list that night but how do you how do you balance being an alpha male with also like kind of you know coming cap in hand like help us out right now we need you well i think gene knows that you know you got to have the the press on your side right if you don't get if you don't get the press so in other words if he ruined his image by groveling to you that would that would really not work look i don't know if any musician or artist would grovel to a writer i mean I, I've never seen it as a journalist. What were your impressions of finally seeing them live, but now without makeup and at the Ritz, which you know a lot of Kiss fans would give their eye teeth to have been at that show? Oh, it was tremendous. You know, you talk about high energy. You know, I mean, and, and you know, it's, look again, like I said, jukebox hit machine, right? I mean, uh, maybe only rivaled by somebody like. Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater Revival the first time I saw him as a solo act you go like alright how many hit records do these guys have and you kind of lose sight of it because you know FM was so sprawling and everyone who was anyone who was trying to make a career had to get their hits on FM radio back in the day you know talking about bands like Steely Dan or Journey you know all these different acts you, you had to you had to really you had to wedge your way in so You'd have a good label and promo, radio promo people, and you have to write good fucking songs, right? At the end of the day, if you're not writing good songs, they're not going to get played. Oh! You know, now that I'm thinking about it, Dave, you know, another act that I probably, I've, I've, 
I have paid more attention to later in my life, maybe because I just had the music ramrod on my throat uh, on FM radio. It was Bob Seger. Yeah. A tremendous act, you know, a, a fucking hit machine, you know. Well, it's and funny that. The New York music, musos that like these obscure bands that have cult followings, you know, good luck making a living, right? Well, it's just funny to me that you're sort of characterizing them as like a hit machine, but, you know, when you look at it, yeah, there's a number of hits, right? Um, but their problem was getting on radio, and they eventually succumbed to Casablanca, uh, and the pressure there, uh, I think, tied to Warner was, hey, you know, we're getting all these hits with disco, and you're on a disco label. So they do, you know... I was made for loving you in 79 and it destroys their fan base because it's so pop ready that, um, you know, now you've got, it's not cool as an 18 year old who liked them as a 15 year old to now have your 13 year old brother by their lunchbox, you know, the whole thing collapsed on itself. So when kiss came, so when kiss came to you, when Gene came to you in 91, 92, they were fighting for credibility. And that's why it's a, it's a very interesting time for uh, historians. Um, but you also have a background there um, where you did were involved in a film uh, about Wildwood, New Jersey, which, as it turns out, is one of the sites where a few of the songs were recorded for a live one. And even though I did some research based on your comments the other day when we chatted, um, I guess there's a much bigger story to Wildwood, New Jersey. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, now we're fast forwarding to the odds, right? So, but this, uh, so this so this is July of '75. Documentary in Wildwood, New Jersey. I have no idea what Wildwood, New Jersey is. I'm from Ohio. You know, we had Cedar Point, which was our big amusement park, and Wildwood at one point was the largest amusement park, even larger than Coney Island. And it, it was kind of like the hip place to go if you're from middle class family from Philadelphia. So a lot of Jews and Italians would take their summer homes there, uh-huh. and and Cape May would be is the far is the next town south, the farthest point south in New Jersey. So yeah, which is south of the Mason Dixon line as well. So you Thank have pristine kind of Cape May, you know, kind of snooty prepster area, and then you have Wildwood, New Jersey. Dick Clark in the fifties was doing teen dances there. Jerry Blab at the Heater with the Heater, the big DJ is doing his dances. They have, you know, a band shell there right on the beach. Bands are playing there. Everyone's playing there. Kip decides, you know, they have a big fan base, obviously, Philly, right, Jersey. And they're going to record some of their live album there. Now, while I'm working on this documentary, I don't know any of this. And, you know, shame on me for not, for not digging deep enough on the research of the music side of things for rock and roll, apart from Springsteen and probably Southside Johnny and a couple of others. But, you know, Kiss shows up. I hear this through uh, third hand after the documentary were done shooting. And I was really pissed because I wanted to get it in there. That, uh, you know, they show up for the gig and there's no PA. Well, anyone worth their salt knows that there's a lot of wise guys. <laughs> well, what's really weird if they're about to record a record and they don't have the PA? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know what happened to the PA. Did the first PA go missing? Was it not there? <laughs> Were there some cross wires? Was there somebody trying to sabotage him? I didn't know. <laughs> be, an be an interesting question for 
you know, the, the, the deep, the deep dark... Uh, the kiss deep state. Kiss, lore. kiss but, deep uh, state. Suffice it to say, the, the, they were able, the powers that be were able to finagle a uh, PA system uh, from somewhere. Legal or not legal, I don't know. I'm not here to... Apparently, uh, it, you know, there's a, there's a book by the roadies, and I was looking it up, the in, initial roadies, and the mob got involved, or somebody got involved and literally stole a PA. But I don't know. Well, that's the story I heard, but I didn't want to say. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, so allegedly, if that's, well, if that's what the roadies allegedly uh, suggest, then perhaps it was. <laughs> but, you know, Wildwood, Wildwood was a really colorful, fun place back in the day. You know, I interviewed Bruce Willis. He'd been a bartender down there. Obviously, uh, there was a song by Bobby Rydell called Wildwood Days, which was a big hit on AM radio and Chuck Checker and all these cats you know, pre-KISS, were all making their way to Wildwood, New Jersey. Uh, you know, it was one of the major places. Sammy Davis, you know, the Rat Pack Cats. Well, what's interesting, uh, Dusty, about it to me is that what it speaks to is at that point, um, they were just becoming successful enough that occasionally they would end up headlining. And the main band would want to back out on low sales, and they would say, hey, "Listen, you know, if we add this East Coast band, we can, we can, and we can lowball them." So this is one of their first shows that they ever put on headlining, is my guess, and it was flimsy. Well, that would be a good question for Gene when you get the Gene interview. You know, to take us back to the or Paul, take us back to those days. You know, what was the most memorable headlining gig in the early side of your career. Because those are always the gigs that really, you know, galvanize a band and galvanize a legacy for a band. You know? Yeah, there's not a lot of... ...perform the headliner. Those, those are the good stories, too. Like, you know, we went on a tour with Journey, and they were enormous, and we blew them out of the water. Well, you know, Kiss, there's a lot of that. I mean, Blue Oyster Cult, mid-tour in 75, Kiss did a number of dates with them, and their management called a meeting and you know with Blue Easter Cult and they said we got good news and bad news. They said, What's the good news? They said the tour is going great. They said, What's the bad news? You're opening. Because people were leaving after KISS. They're not gonna stick around for Don't Fear the Reaper, man. They you know, they just had their heads removed. You know, that's another band that had a lot of uh, early success with FM radio, right? Right. Uh, Don't Fear the Reaper, the Reaper Godzilla. You know, and uh, it's funny because I followed their career early, early on, but then when they got a little too commercial on FM, I kind of bowed out right around the time period the hits started coming. But, you know, the first two Blue Oyster Cult records, I liked them because they had that kind of prog leaning. There's, a, there's an interview with one of the guys from the band uh, recently talking about his time spent with Gene and Paul on that tour. And uh, I'll send it to you. But hey, before I ask you for like a vision statement on sort of Kiss's legacy, um, I understand that uh, you have personal knowledge of the uh, you know considerable class of one Paul Stanley by virtue of your uh, lovely wife. Yes, this is a good story, and it's funny because every time my wife tells it now, uh, there seems to be another. There seems to be another uh, element added to the story. I bet. So, when I first, you know, maybe it's her security with our relationship 25 years on. But uh, the story goes, my wife was working at Union Square Cafe, 
which in its day was the hottest restaurant in New York. It's Danny Myers, the big restaurateur who owns uh, Shake Shack and you know all these really high-end restaurants. Uh-huh. And and my wife is uh, front of house running it. First woman to run front of house for one of his restaurants, as she tells me. And uh, Paul's having dinner with a gal and uh, some other people. And a woman comes up to him, I guess it was Paul's assistant maybe, or a press agent or somebody, and said, uh, Mr. Stanley would like to meet you. And my wife said to the, the uh, person, well, if Mr. Stanley would like to meet me, he can get up here and introduce himself. <laughs> I guess Paul at some point was able to duck out or duck away from uh, his date or whomever it might have been and introduced himself and uh, asked for my wife's number. She was single back then. And one thing led to another. And, you know, I always thought it was like one or two dates, but, you know, every year that she, she seems to add another, well, there were four <laughs> or five dates or maybe five or six. So, <laughs> you know, I guess I'll have to ask for the gory details, but she said he was always a gentleman. He was incredibly polite. He, you know, he didn't force himself on her. My wife wouldn't stand for that anyway because she's not the groupie type of uh, right. falling into uh, uh, awe of a, uh, of any musician or any human being for that matter, except for me. Obviously. Oh, but right. I was going to ask. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. Just the opposite, actually. <laughs> but uh, uh, Paul and I have good taste. What can I say? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I guess it ran its course. You know, my wife worked in the restaurant business. She never had nights off, so she couldn't even go to the shows. I'm sure, I think Paul invited to her show the, in New York or somewhere close to New York, and she couldn't go because as a manager of a high-end three-star restaurant, you know, you, you're there. You're, you're married to a restaurant person at 24-7, 365, basically. But no, she had nothing, but, you know, he was incredibly gracious and a nice guy. You know, and, and so after he might have married his wife. So with the little that you know about Paul, you know, having met him a couple times, and then you've got Gene, and then you've got the support cast, and then of course uh, we hung out with Ace with Jim Felber from Gibson there at Gibson headquarters at the Hit Factory, um, and uh, how different could Ace Fraley be from those two cats? Well, Ace was the epitome of rock and roll and all the indulgences, right? everything across the board and you know he's what ace is from the, was ace originally from staten island i know he's, no, he's from the bronx from the bronx right 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 so you know he's a you know he's a he's a rock and roll guitar hero right i mean you know as limited as i am with my understanding of their large catalog is it is it fair to say that they lost a big chunk of their sound when ace left the band well you know what i mean like he came out and they did 50 auditions so he was the guy and so you know even if it was a bad kiss song or a bad kiss record you were waiting for ace's solo yeah of course i know the guy's a monster so you know i think when you lose a, a part of a band like that it's very very difficult you know i usually use the example of rem when their drummer had a stroke right and he stopped performing with him I didn't realize how integral he was to the sound until he was gone. So you don't know what you're missing till that person is gone. So yeah, his his replacements were fine. I you know, but there was just something. Maybe it was the sense of danger that, and you know, the fact that he was on the edge made it work for them. Because those guys, 
Well, that that is the excitement yeah, in seeing uh, Kiss with Ace. You know, when you see them solo, you know, it's like X amount of excitement. But like you said, when you have all of them, and you saw Gene and Paul with two other guys, but did you ever see them reunited in makeup? I did, as a matter of fact. I was at the CES show, the Consumer Electronics Show, five or six years ago. Okay, but that's not Ace and Peter. No, 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 no. That wasn't that was reunion shows. So what you were getting at about Ace, though, is absolutely on, and that is you don't, he could be spot on at one point and really be electric and amazing, and in the same night be awful. Yeah. So it's sort of like, he's sort of the Keith Richards of American rock, because he's really, you know, he's a stubborn prick who won't practice, and, you know, everything's like, like he almost like gratifies in being on the high wire and barely able to do it, you know, and then having a moment. Well, you know, as somebody, and you've been in bands, I've been in bands with difficult people. It's never fun, especially when you're trying to break in new material or trying to write new songs. And you yeah, have yeah. somebody who's a wildcat and you got to drag them out of a bar or they're, you know, nodding out because of their indulgences. Or you got to, you know, roust him out of bed or, you know, call the girlfriend and say, you know, where's so-and-so, he's two hours late. And on that professional level, that, that's got to be maddening for guys like Paul and Gene who are like the kind yep. pros. I mean, you don't keep a career going that long if you don't run a tight ship. And, you know, look, Kiss is the first band, maybe even before the Stones, to really sell their product as merch and swag, caskets, you name it, right? I mean, the stories of what KISS Army fans will do and buy, they're legendary, right? And, and Gene and Paul are master marketing guys. And you know what's interesting, Dusty, is that, you know, on the potosphere, you know, even the popularity of the Beatles, uh, if you were to do the metrics, doesn't compare to the amount of traffic uh, for KISS podcasts. Like, you know, you can think of the Kinks, the Stones, the Beatles, Elvis. Who else is there? The the KISS, you know... Well, I would say probably the only thing that would might... The Grateful be, Dead. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe the Dead as far as... Yeah, the Dead's a good one because they have their own channel on Sirius. But I was going to say probably UFOs. It's probably UFOs, Bigfoot. Bigfoot and KISS. Yeah, yeah. So listen, well, I you know... know but, uh, I would put them on the same level as those topics. You know, at some point coming soon, Dusty, you know, one of these guys is going to pass away and then we're going to be really looking at, uh, you know, what their legacy is, you know, on places like, you know, seeing uh, that there'll be a quick blurb on every news source. You know, and if you were to do that news source, whether it's Ace, Peter, Gene, or Paul, what would you say Kiss's legacy is? I would say, I think, you know, you nailed it early on when you said they're really the people's kind of band. You know, and there's a few bands like that. You could say Rush, Kiss, Bob Seger, Springsteen, you know, the heart and soul of middle America. You know, they represent that, that, that kind of heart and soul of, of, of a real music fan. And, and what's funny is it took a Midwestern sort of work ethos, if you will, instead of Flash, even though they were a Flash band, to bust out of New York. Right, right. 
Same thing with Springsteen. He was more popular in the Midwest first than he was on, you know, in New York. But Kiss is definitely in a waning period, really pushing this end of the road. They set up a um, sabbatical, you know, while they were off the road for the last three months in Vegas and soft sales, they canceled it, right? And, you know, I can, I just can't see them coming back through. And right now they're going to like all these other countries, but they're really, they're really pushing it. And it makes me wonder, you know, how bad you need the money, like, or if it's just, you just can't stop because this is who you are. Well, it's hard for some performers. It's, and it depends on your style of music. Uh, the Stones are playing blues music, so, you know, the blues and jazz and folk and some elements of country are a lot more forgiving as you age. You know, Bob Dylan's an example of that as well. You know, he's a, he's a classic troubadour, and, you know, he's kind of morphed into this elder statesman, right? And his, and his story songs are much like a Woody Guthrie's or some of these other. But rock and roll is really, really hard. You know, Robert Plant had no um, had no desire to reunite Led Zeppelin without one of their founding members. And so he's morphed into this other kind of interesting uh, troubadour that is doing Americana and world music and these, and these different singer-songwriter modes. Where, so Kiss you know? has nowhere else to go, really. Well, Paul did, the, Paul did his uh, R&B soul record last year. Yes, it's pretty you know? interesting. I thought that was very brave. I listened to some of it. I thought it was okay, you know. Uh, Why don't so, you pop it on and see if the wife tells you more? I will ask, I'll ask her some more gory details. Dave wants to know if you slept with her. <laughs> Dusty, I feel like this is pretty damn good, you know, with a little editing. Good. Right. It's an absolute thrill, brother. You know I love you. Yeah, bro. Likewise. All right, no. man. Here's to the I, best of no. 22. And congratulations on your new stellar record. And uh, I'll let you know when I got this together. Thanks. I'll help promote it. God bless. Peace. Peace. You're listening to Kistorian Brothers. Phone calls about Kiss from your friends at Kistorian.com. The originals, keeping it real since 2010.